186. 186. Barrett, we're closing in, believe it or not, on 200 friggin' episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Barry Rose, how you doing? Jeff, have we hired a an event planner for the 200th episode? I just want to know, should we have a 200th celebratory episode complete with uh, a nice meal, some beverages? And if so, Barry, will pasta be on the meal? Yeah, pasta might be I, on the I love a good plate of pasta, Bear. What about you? I you know what? You you know what kind of pasta I like, Jeff? When Please somebody else me. makes pasta for me. That is and, and when Ozzy's with you, it's and even when, better. Because yeah. that way you can slip uh, Ozzy a little pasta. Anyway. Thanks for joining us, folks, because if you had joined us earlier, it would have been the most depressing episode <laughs> in the history of Breaking Game. No, we're not gonna be talking about what we were talking about off air, which was oh not good stuff. So on this episode. Barry, we are going to be featuring, I'm going to say, our match of the week. I mentioned this to our uh, producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman. The genesis of the uh, idea to talk about this match is this week on uh, the old Twitter, Dave Meltzer responding to someone who talked about this particular match said that at the time he saw this, it would have been uh, August 15th, 1992, he said the greatest match he'd ever seen live in person uh, up to this point, don't know whether that's been topped or not, Manami Toyota versus Toshia Yamada. I believe it was one of the wrestling marine pads or something like that. Uh, it's hair versus hair with the ladies bear. And we're going to talk about that. I am also going to be bringing up to our friend, Mr. Rose, the top 10. Yes, you wanted it. You asked for it. It's back. The top 10 most influential films of the 1980s, at least according to this one article that I have. All right. I'm going to be talking about a couple of uh, things I've seen recently on the old HBO. We're going to be doing, I believe, Mr. Rose is going to offer an F. Mary or Kick to the Curb. Part two from Two and a Half Men. Is that correct, Bear? That is absolutely correct, sir. Thank you. And I'm going to throw a little curveball, maybe uh -oh. a little... little <coughs> little spit on the curveball uh -oh. to Barry Rose towards the end of this episode as I'm going to be offering him something as suggested. <clears throat> Stephen Javorski. That's right, Barry. I said it. He mentioned something, and I'm going to throw you something at you that he mentioned, and, and, and we're going to discuss that uh, involving uh, heels. Wow. Now, did he, do the, did he do this in our Facebook group? I don't know. Because okay. you'd be asking me to remember something from a couple days ago. You know, uh, 35 years ago, I can talk about. Last sure. week, uh, no, I got no memories. So, uh, so Barry, we're also going to be, we can we talk about this first. Barry, recently on the old A&E channel, we got the uh, WWE-approved bio, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Barry, I thought this was really well done. Uh, I had some minor problems with it. And one of the things I reached out to uh, to Barry while the show was being uh, broadcast, and I told him, I said, you know, why is it that WWE is presenting Vince McMahon as kindly Grandpa Vince, the guy that is just everyone's best friend, seemingly had lots of nice things uh, to say about Steve Austin, which, quite frankly, he should. I mean, Steve Austin made him an incredible amount of money in a short period of time. Barry, have you had a chance to see this yet or not? I have not seen it, but I, I probably will. And I, 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 you know, I was a fan of Stone Cold Steve Austin when it was all happening, when he was breaking through and becoming the next big star. That was a really exciting period. And he was, uh, you know, here was a guy, the genius of, I guess, McMahon and, and Stone Cold as well. Here was a guy that just as he was starting to break through and peak, 
suffered a broken neck that was going to keep him out of action for, what, six months or a year, yet he was on television every week, and he was still the lead guy every week, and he was sending the ratings through the roof without even wrestling. That's incredible. So I will see this. Yeah, and, and you know, for as much as we can be critical about uh, about the WWE and their product uh, at times, uh, I think we also offer them praise when it's warranted sure. and due. You know, first of all, when Steve Austin exploded and, and really became the guy, he needed the perfect foil, the perfect heel, and Vince was absolutely the perfect foil and the perfect heel. Oh, he absolutely was, and Vince knew that too, and it it really worked out, and they went back and forth. I don't know how long. Was that a year, maybe even longer? But again, you know, there were no matches that were surrounding that. And yet it was still like the highest rated segment on a weekly basis. And the ratings were through the roof. And then when Stone Cold finally came back and was able to wrestle, this was magic. That was a true golden period. And you talk about taking, you know, chicken shit and turning it into chicken salad. Again, Steve Austin broke his neck and couldn't wrestle. A lot of guys would be out. We'll see you in six months. We'll see you in a year. Instead, he's right back on television the next night, becoming the lead babyface. That's incredible. Yeah, and his his recollection of when his injury occurred was just really compelling. You know, when he talked about what it was like, you know, when the incident happened, and he says, "I'm laying on the mat. I basically can't can't feel you know parts of my body, and I'm thinking that I have this broken neck." Yet he and Owen were professional enough, and you know, obviously. Not surprisingly, there was some heat between the two of them uh, because he felt like Owen had done something that was not safe, that it resulted in him being injured. But the fact that they're both professional enough to go, and I think he called it the world's worst roll-up ever, but they finished the match, and then you know the guys were out there to assist him to the back, and you have this footage of him in the back where they're basically waiting for the doctor to come look at him because he says, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, am I going to be able to walk again? Am I going to be able to, you know, do everything? And, you know, he talks about there's a scene where as he's walking or gets out of the ring and he's being led back, you know, arms over the guys being led back. He says, if you notice my, uh, I think it was his, I don't know if it was left or right, but one of his feet is dragging behind the other. And he goes, that's because I couldn't feel that leg. And it's just really incredibly compelling. And it, it was great fun looking back at some of the skits. And you're right. He wasn't wrestling, but what he was doing was every week. They would have these, you know, Stone Cold versus, you know, Mr. McMahon skits. And that was the stuff that was drawing people in. And it's amazing considering this guy had this perfect heel opponent for his character. And they never were meeting in the ring. It was always they were meeting in skits. Well, they were meeting in the ring. But like, you know, with the hose, with the beer and and all that kind of stuff. And just doing all these skits to keep the thing compelling, to keep the fans interested. And the fact that they were able to do this not only over a week or two, but over months and months and months until he could finally get back in the ring is absolutely staggering and amazing. Yeah. You know, that that's, I think that's the beauty of wrestling sometimes is you can plan, you can plot, you can come up with all these storylines and angles and maybe people don't bite. And then something happens that nobody plans for and, and magic is created. I think stone cold is definitely it. The rock, you know, the rock, I don't think anybody was planning exactly what happened for the rock, obviously, that was incredible. And Daniel Bryan's another one. You know, I, I've referenced that a million times. They kind of did everything within their power to not get Daniel Bryan over. And, you know, to the point that 
other wrestlers, Mick Foley was the one that comes to mind, were actually saying, what are you doing, WWE? It's obvious that the fans want this guy, that the fans are into this guy. So interesting parallels between The Rock, Stone Cold, and Daniel Bryan. But, you know, to me, you know, you did you did booking, Jeff. Obviously, you've written a book about it. You know, why don't you give us the details? Where can I order this book? Uh, you mean, uh, of course, my uh, book, uh, They Call Me Booker. Yes, uh, yes sir. available through a crowbar press, or if you'd like to reach out personally to your beloved author, I could perhaps provide you with a autographed copy or a personalized autographed copy, Barry, which is of course worth its weight in gold. Please continue. And that's the route you want to go. The personalized autographed copy with a snarky little comment to me. If that's what you want. That's gold right there. That's money right there. But yes, getting back to the subject at hand, you know, if, if bookers and this was one of my ideas, and uh, and I'll put this out there. I've been writing a book on New Wave and 80s punk and New Wave for seemingly since I had a full head of hair and was about 20 pounds lighter. And it's, uh, I should say, I haven't done any work on it recently, but I did want to write a wrestling book at some point. And my idea was to write a book on booking. And that was to interview people that had either been bookers or had worked hand in hand and closely with bookers. And the one common thing I got is you cannot always plan on what's going to happen. You can lay it out. You can come up with all these scenarios. But ultimately, the ticket buyers, the people in the arenas, the people that are in charge of ratings, you know, these are the ones who are going to dictate what you should be doing. So to me, I, I find it fascinating on so many levels, you know, that you could push one guy to the moon. And I think Bobby Lashley, who we talked about last week, is a great example. Bobby Lashley has been pushed in the uh, WWE for, I'll say, the last two years, maybe three years, with nothing, with nothing happening. And all of a sudden, does a change about it with his attitude, and this guy is on fire. He's just literally on fire. And I, I think that's great. I like the fact that not everything is so black and white and cut and dry that, you know, you can shake things up a little bit. But you know, the, the old philosophy, Jeff, and as a booker, you will appreciate this too. You know, when Dusty Rhodes turned, the impetus for the Dusty Rhodes turn was Eddie Graham. And Eddie said he would come out and he would listen to the crowd when Dusty was wrestling and he wouldn't watch the match. He would actually turn his back just to listen to the reactions that Dusty was getting. And as Eddie always said, and he said this privately, cause I don't think Eddie ever broke kayfabe in a public forum ever, but enough people have told me this, that I take it as gospel, at least at this stage, that Eddie Graham said he didn't turn Dusty Rhodes, the fans turned Dusty Rhodes, that he knew when the time was right, that's why he wound up pulling the trigger. And I always found that really interesting that it, it occurred that way. So, well, so you he, know, one, one of the things we've talked about is, uh, you know, when we talk about the great bookers, the great promoters that we've discussed over 186 episodes here is, you know, Giant Baba. We recently uh, talked about how when it came time to finally flip the switch and have Masawa beat Jumbo Saruta and become the new lead dog for all Japan is that he paid attention to the audience and he yeah. listened to the crowd, the way they were responding to Masawa. It's what got him to finally have the, the mask off of Masawa as Tiger Mask. And then uh, a little bit more time goes by. And he sends word down to the dressing room after uh, I think he was, uh, you know, sitting at maybe the, the table with uh, people buying merchandise. And he's seeing the reaction that Masao is getting just from people buying merchandise. And 
he sends word to the back and he says, uh, I want Masawa to go over tonight. And Jumbo goes, well, what, you mean by count out? Nope. And he didn't say, no, I want to win. It was just like, nope, I don't mean by count out. And Jumbo knew what the message meant. And that was the time. And, and to think about, you know, not, and we're, we're talking about, you know, Eddie and, and Giant Baba, two of the greatest promoters of all time. Has Vince McMahon ever pulled the trigger like that? I'm sure he has. I'm sure Vince Sr. did. You know, I'm sure guys like Paul Bosch and Don Owen, the guys that are always thought of, uh, Jerry Jarrett, guys that are the great promoters. Uh, you know, I'm sure they've pulled the trigger, but these are the ones that we, you know, that we know about. And so, uh, well, but yeah. to add to that has, and I, I, so I'm, I'll go on record. I think giant Baba may be the greatest wrestling promoter of all time. Hold, hold on one second. I'll write that down. Barry. Okay. You said on the record, so I, I'm just, I just want to make sure. So you got I'm it. writing it down. I'm all right. It down. Sweet, sweet Lou. We're actually recording, right? So we're good. It, this is, this is happening. I, you I change your think, mind and say Nick Goulas. I'm going to say, no, no, by God. Yes. Nick Goulas and the guy that was running spot shows in hazard, Kentucky <laughs> yeah, at right. local high school. Yes. That guy also. So to your point of what you just said, do you think Vince McMahon ever did it that way? Like on the fly where he listens to a crowd and goes, we're going to completely change all of our plans now. And we're going to have so-and-so it it never that this is shit that would have happened in a board. He he never did it with Roman Reigns. That's for damn sure. Right. Exactly. But he would have it. You know, I I think he would have bounced the idea off of 20 people and then they would have met in the writer's room and all this shit would have happened. But a guy like Giant Baba, because a guy again, I have the ultimate respect for Giant Baba as a promoter and as a booker that he felt that in, and I've heard that story. He felt that his intuition and what he was hearing from the crowd was enough to pull this trigger. And rightly so. I think that's great. You know, Vince McMahon would have listened to three people who are earning a million dollars each and get all these different viewpoints and probably all have hands in the fire, you know, for whatever the reason is Baba did it for the right reason, which was the business. But I, I love the comparison of that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so getting back to the show, the the uh, Annie series are off to a great start. I know that they've got. I want to say the next one is is Piper. That's going to be when this episode comes out. It will have been two nights before. I know they've got some other ones planned. So it's off to a good start. I didn't think it was perfect. My main complaint was uh, that lots of input from different guys and. Um, they even had included uh, Mike Johnson from uh, PWI Insider, which I thought was pretty amazing. And there were comments from uh, The Rock. Not terribly surprising. Triple H felt uh, the need to get in there and <laughs> offer sure. his opinion, uh, which sure. I know is stunning to you. The only thing I felt like they didn't have was I would have liked to have had a little bit more about his interaction with Chris Adams. Uh, not not that I needed you know to have some sort of uh, testimonial for Chris Adams, but just because. That early Austin versus Adams program was really what made people stand up and take uh, attention to him, you know? And and so he really was just like, oh yeah, then I went to Chris Adams school and, and, you know, they showed the, the advert copy, the advertisement, but he really uh, didn't mention Chris. And I know at the end, Chris had a lot of demons and was kind of regarded as a big old a-hole by a lot of people because of some stuff he did towards the end of his life, you know, having to do mostly with his drinking and everything. But I really felt like he didn't mention enough about how Chris Adams influenced his early part of his career. I will say I was very surprised that he did give credit for the name to his ex-wife. His ex-wife was also mentioned. 
when discussing uh, his two kids and the fact that, you know, Steve says, hey, I was on the road. I was trying to make money for my family. I was extremely hot at the time. So I felt like I needed to be on the road as opposed to taking myself off the road. And he goes, I did it. I don't regret it in the sense that I made a lot of money for my family and to support my family. But he also realizes that it was extremely harmful to his relationship with his daughters, which he says he's now trying to repair. Uh, I respect him for that. And I hope that does go well for him. So I will give a thumbs up to the very first episode of uh, the A&E biography series on the WWF stars. I'm sorry, Barry, the WWF wrestlers. I don't call them WWE superstars. Superstars. They're friggin' wrestlers. Excuse me. Superstars. And Jeff, we are officially, we are part of the WWE universe. We are. That's what they say. If you're a fan, I guess you're part of the WWE universe. Quick question. Uh, Funny, I haven't got a check for being. (laughs) Well, you'll never get one of those. That's for sure. Is, are these the daughters of Jeannie Clark? I believe they are. Gotcha. Do they live in this country or are they in England? Uh, well, at the time, he did reference the fact that his wife took them back to England, ended up staying in part because of the pandemic and, and all that surrounded that. So it kind of, uh, I'm thinking that they still live over there. Okay. Yeah. So now, Barry, it's time for a top 10 list. Are you ready for a top 10 list? I have not sent you the link. So you have no idea what I'm going to throw at you right now. So I just thought we'd discuss some of these films. I did mention, I will tell the listeners, one film on here that I haven't seen that I asked Barry, hey, since so we can talk about this. Have you seen this film? He said he did. Top 10 most influential American movies of the 1980s. This is from the uh, website tasteofcinema.com. Are you ready to go, Mr. Rose? <sighs> I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. Number 10, list. Evil Dead 2. So I liked the Evil Dead movies. I liked Bruce Campbell. I loved the TV show that was on Stars, which was called Ash versus the Evil Dead. I should say I loved the first season. I really liked the second season. And then it was all going to shit in the third season. Yes, I liked this movie, but somehow it it's completely lost on me how this would be one of the most influential 10 movies of the 80s decade. That part I don't understand. But yes, I did movie. not write the article. I'm just telling you what the article says. So I will say of the Evil Dead series, I was a big fan of Evil Dead 3, where he goes like back into the medieval times. And yep. you know, that that uh, I thought was a really good movie. I'm not a huge horror guy, but I did really enjoy Evil Dead 3, which, you know, I don't know whether or not people would include that as straight up, uh, you know. Cabin in the Woods kind of uh, horror, like I think the it's first comedy too. I mean, there's a lot yeah, of comedic yeah, yeah. shit you know. in that, yeah. But number nine, Barry. Oh boy, I remember when this movie came out. This was super controversial, Barry, from 1989. Steven Soderbergh's Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, so I, this was this another one. I it, this was controversial. I believe I went on opening day because uh, I wanted to see what all this fuss was about. And I think there was points throughout the film where I am sticking a pin into my arm to keep me awake because I found the movie boring, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So again, I don't see where this would be the most inf- the ninth most influential movie of the entire decade of the 19th. Let me, I'm going to stop right. Is Raiders of the Lost Ark on this list? Yet? I am not going to do a spoiler. Thank you very All much. All right. <laughs> I will only say that Part of the reason this is on here, I will mention this, is okay. because it mentions that it started the, quote, infinite waves of provocative and talky independence 
centered on neurotic wasps. And that Boy. it did. There was a Boy. lot of independent films that came out after that. So you you will neurotic give credit. Neurotic wasps. Who wrote this fucking list? Who wrote this article? Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me see if I can. We need uh, a name. See if I get the guy's name. Maybe it's at the end. I'll see if it's at the All end. All right. And then so, can we get him on as a guest? Because I would love to have a conversation <laughs> with this guy. That could be the most fun ever. It's going to be a more popular choice, I'm sure, Barry. Number eight, it goes to 11. Yes, from 1984, this is Spinal Tap. Yeah, so that I can't. So where, where I think this would be influential, this created essentially the mockumentary, the fake documentary. The first time I ever saw Spinal Tap, I was so taken with it. And Spinal Tap, what I thought was such a great movie is that you literally could watch it a dozen times and you'll pick up something new every time. So this one I actually agree with. Yes. Yeah. It says uh, this film also a likely influence on Judd Apatow's films. And also they said that if you really want to appreciate this is Spinal Tap, you need to also check out The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years. Which uh, let me tell you something. If you watch that movie, favorite. it's yeah. my least favorite of the three. Yes, but if you if you watch that and then watch Spinal Tap, you really get to appreciate it. You do, sure. So yes, number seven, Barry. Oh, I think you're going to be happy, Barry. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. But there I, did, it is. I did not Boom. spoil it. I did not spoil it. I did not spoil it. And really, what I would the reason I was saying was there were so many ripoffs and knockoffs of Raiders of, I mean, almost movies that were almost identical in a lot of, uh, certainly much less than Raiders, that it was influential, but the whole way I think the story was presented was something that we saw for years and still continue to see. To me, it, it really set the tone on this adventure movie. And it's, I, you know, I, I know that there were adventure movies obviously before Raiders, but I think to me, it's almost like a dividing line right there where pre-Raiders and post-Raiders, and you can really see the difference post because so many movies just you know picked up from the success of that film. So good. I'm glad that that one made the list. I do like 7 and 8 a lot. A so quote, I'm using up on the author right okay, now. A quote from the article, despite low pre-release enthusiasm, the film succeeded in making a period piece that could capture the imagination and hearts of 1980s children. It also cemented the assumption that the masses crave fantasy and escapism, which is obviously no different from the current theatrical film landscape. As far as big, glossy 1980s films go, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a real face melter. Would you see what he did there, Barry? Oh, I like it. Yeah, Uh, he's right. Number six, another one that I know is a fave of Barry's. So we're going to go eight, seven, and six. You're going to be happy with this choice too, Barry. Oh, number six, Barry, let's suck in that nitrous. Blue Velvet. Absolutely. So Blue Velvet, to me, if I was to encapsulate... Are you a little happier with the list now, Barry? This is the best fucking list we've ever had. So (laughs) we had a rocky start with this, obviously, but the the ship has really righted itself at this stage. So Blue Velvet was shocking. And I, I don't know if somebody today could watch Blue Velvet and get the full impact. But boy, in 1986, boy, was it shocking. It was so shocking that the scene when Isabella Rossellini is running around naked outside the house, I'm looking around the movie theater to see other people's reactions, (laughs) which really were. People were like stunned. This was a very impactful film, and I think this actually took the lid off of a lot of sterilized movies because this was shocking. And this was also 
You talk about unique and original. Is there another movie prior to Blue Velvet that's even remotely similar to it? And even post, even though there's, you know, people copy stuff from Blue Velvet all the time, but I don't think anybody's even done it since. I blew absolutely influential. I do like this list. Six, seven, and eight, baby. So a couple things. First of all, uh, we previously have done, I think, uh, greatest movie villains and Frank Booth, just uh, an amazing character, an amazing performance. So it says here in the article, one could argue that Blue Velvet opened the floodgates of independent films that were transgressive while mixing genres and eras, severed ears and older music used for juxtaposition. By the way, I don't think we've ever uttered the words juxtaposition here. That's uh, Barry. a big word. Yeah. Also, I, mean, I barely was able to pronounce it. Also figure into Reservoir Dogs, for example. Additionally, the sexually charged neo-noir that, for better or worse, populated the 90s and has lingered in the 21st century is also the result of Blue Velvet. Barry, I, right off the top of my head, think about the way that this movie influenced the TV show Twin Peaks. Well, it's David Lynch. So, I mean, yeah. the truth is David Lynch is always going to be on the periphery of anything normal. I mean, he's, you know, he's definitely doing his own thing. It definitely influenced Twin Peaks. You ever see a racer head, Jeff? I have not. I know what you're talking about, though. I know the movie you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, a racer head is an unusual movie, but it's also a movie you could walk away and absolutely hate because, you know, the first time I saw it, I didn't get it. I think, and I walked away and I was just like, God, it was boring. I just don't, I don't truly understand it, but there's so much more to this film. And a lot of it is his directing style, his directorial style. He's very unique, David Lynch, but I, I've actually grown to like a racer head a lot, uh, but not more than, than the film that we're discussing. So blue velvet is, I mean, my God, if, if you've never seen it, Grab a couple of cocktails, get a slight buzz going. Yeah, hey, I, I was going to yes. say that would certainly help uh, the appreciation of this Absolutely. movie. Absolutely, uh, take the phone no, off the hook. You know, yeah, just, make sure you're not answering the door. <laughs> Somebody give yourself two hours uninterrupted. You don't have to do anything. Get a little buzz going. Watch Blue Velvet. Get back to us on that one, and maybe suck the nitrous and uh, you know and enjoy Love yourself. But yeah, there exactly. you go. So Barry, the list continues. And the Barry Rose Admiration uh, Society yay. will grow even larger. That's a very weak yay, <laughs> by the way. It's a, it sounds, like, sounds like my daughter. Oh, well, we're having Easter dinner. You want to come over? Yay. yay. So, you know, number five, <laughs> Barry, the Terminator, 1984. Uh, Barry, uh, are you ready to get out the hand cream at this point? Because it's, it's I, you know. It's already, it's already, oh, you're already done. Okay. So, yes, uh, you yes. know, uh, I thought that was the was... week. Yay. That was the <laughs> climax of the week. Yay. Boy, don't, so nothing better than that is pasta, right? My man, it's pasta and a big bowl of pasta and Ozzy by my side. So uh, pasta, the... hand cream and a little bit of blue velvet. <laughs> is that the name <laughs> of the new, of the next episode? Is that... <laughs> hey, man, that's where we go. That <laughs> that's, that's the name of this episode. Pasta yeah. and lotion pasta. and a little bit, yeah. a little bit of blue velvet. Okay. Go ahead. When I work, I work remotely about 95% of the time. And I was working out of my studio today, and I actually had on Terminator Dark Fate, which I probably have seen, which, Jeff, will go down in history. And I'll tell you why in a second. But I've seen Terminator Dark Fate maybe 10 times, and I'll always put a Terminator movie on if it's on. So Terminator Dark Fate, Jeff, the last film that I saw in movie theaters I saw it October 31st of 2019 and also the last film I saw in the Cinerama Dome 
which as you may know is now closed and there is talk of possibly it might be torn down. There's petitions to save it. If you've ever seen a movie in Cinerama, it is a unique experience. There are only three left in the U.S. I guess in the 50s and 60s, they were everywhere. There's only three left, and L.A. is the big one right there, but it is on its way. But the first Terminator, was it influential? That's where this guy is on the money, because, yes, that movie was really, really influential and set up again, not just set up a Terminator franchise, but set up so many imitations and so many weak imitations But it was a game changer. Arnold Schwarzenegger, up until that point, he wasn't a box office guy. He had done the Conan movies. He had done. Okay, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to stay right there. At this point, if he, in (laughs) fact, listens to our show. What you're going for. Yep. Do you know who at this moment is absolutely losing his mind by you casting aside Arnold in the Conan movies? Go ahead. Tell me the name. It is a guy with a black heart. Tom Nash. Yes. Tom Nash, his life revolves around work and putting up on Instagram scenes from the Conan movies. You know where (laughs) it comes from, too. It comes from, he loves the artist, Frank Frazetta. Sure. Yeah, no, he does. Yeah, and that's where I think a lot of that comes from. But, you know, look, Conan was what it was. It just wasn't going to propel Arnie into the next stratosphere and maybe be the biggest action hero of the 80s. And uh, the Terminator did that. And the Terminator, A, Arnie was the right place, the right time, because I can't think of anybody else to be the Terminator. But a lot of it, too, has to go to James Cameron, who, you know, wrote and directed a fantastic movie. And Linda Hamilton as well. You know, Linda Linda Hamilton was the perfect foil, essentially, at that stage. So I love the movie The Terminator. I watched it, I don't know, within the last week. I believe it's on Prime currently. It's one of my go-to movies that I will always put on. I get it. I love it. And this list, Jeff, what a dramatic turnaround. This is incredible. Well, a couple things. (laughs) (laughs) I recognize that well. No, first of all, I just want to know if you're really that up on the Terminator and the Terminator trivia, do you know, and I'm going to put a caveat on this. I, I may be wrong, but I could swear that I've heard this rumor amongst the people before the the role was given to Schwarzenegger, who one of the guys was that was being considered for the role of the Terminator. I, I want to say, I probably have heard this before, but OJ Simpson. I did hear that. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. Uh, certainly wow. would have spun the movie differently, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes. uh, slightly, yeah, just a <laughs> slightly. little bit, of course, uh, yeah. uh the, uh, the writer says it introduces the first Terminator catapulting Schwarzenegger, to film stardom where he would spend decades shooting guns and spitting iconic catchphrases. Yep. The Schwarzenegger factor alone makes the Terminator the most influential action film of the decade aside from Die Hard. Now, Barry, let me just say that he said the most influential action film of the decade. He did not say the most influential Christmas movie of the decade. I'm just Yeah, you see where I went with that? Yeah, yeah, I see exactly where you went. Okay, number four. Here we uh, bring into play the film that Barry, I have not seen this movie, but Barry said he did see uh, Barry, Stranger Than Paradise from a director, Jim Jarmusch. Yeah, so Jim Jarmusch, he's an arty film director. And this was a guy, actually, when I lived in New York, you would see walking about in the village all the time. So he's quirky, eccentric. I like the film. He's got a film, too, that is... 
shit, Netflix, it's on one of the streaming devices, and it's Bill Murray. It's just a current movie, maybe a year old, that I think went straight to Netflix because of the pandemic. It's Bill Murray playing a cop. I forget who the other stars are, but it's about zombies overtaking a town. And it's quirky and it's offbeat. I like this movie because I saw it in New York City when it came out at this arty movie theater down in the village called the Angelica. And anybody that's ever been to uh, New York and ever seen a movie at the Angelica will know if you look up at this. Actually, you'll love this, Jeff. There's a You're not talking about Zombieland, are you? No, no, no. Okay. Which that, that would make sense. But no, it wasn't Zombieland. It's an arty movie. And I, I forget what it's called, but... The Angelica is this beautiful, arty movie theater. They don't play mainstream movies. At least they didn't used to. I don't know what's currently happening. But they would always show films from other countries, films with subtitles, or smaller independent films. It's just its a great place to go. I love the movies. And they've got this mural up on the ceiling. And I believe it's is it Picasso. It's not Picasso. I forget exactly. It's Michelangelo. It's a takeoff of Michelangelo, and I was there when the guy was painting this, and this goes back to the early 90s. However, Jeff, what the Angelica is really famous for, it was one of the first movie theaters that would have the full lineup of food and beverages. Like if you wanted a cappuccino, you could get it. This is years before anybody else was doing it. And I would always show up early, and I would sit in the lobby before the movie started, I would read the paper, which was the Village Voice. I would get something to drink. And one day, it's middle of the week. It's maybe 2, 3 o'clock. And a young lady comes in and is sitting right across from me, inconspicuous, you know, just looks like another person. And it was one of your favorite actresses that you had a slight crush on, the lovely, and I got to say, really in person, really lovely Mary Stewart Masterson. Masterson. Very good. I think you know, I think you told this story before. Did I, mean, I tell you that? Episode, yeah. Because right. yeah. I know that I, I know that you had a huge crush on her. So whenever well, I, I, I really liked her in some kind of wonderful. Yeah. I, she was whenever, I gotta tell you, she is, I'll tell you what I remember about that day. She really was beautiful. And she had beautiful skin and a really beautiful smile. And it really showed. And she was just another moviegoer going by herself, going to see a movie, which I just thought was so cool. So uh, I will say that the person writing the article said, quote, the influence of Stranger Than Paradise remains to this day as plotless mumblecore films can trace their ancestry to its stark minimalism. Got it. Modernized beatnik sensibility. First time I know that we've ever used the term beatnik and <laughs> contemplative mood. So uh, anyway. Number three, Barry, again, you're going to love the go home for this list. Okay. Number three, the Christmas movie. Yes. Die Hard. Again, take out the Die Hard franchise, which I think there's 27 movies at this stage. I love the original. I can take or leave any of the other films, but the original is so impactful to me. It's flawless in what it's trying to accomplish. You want an action movie with a likable kick-ass action hero. This is the film. And I like the fact it all takes place within a building. I love that. I just think everything about this movie is great. And I remember when this movie was, I remember the trailer when it was coming out and they would play Ode to Joy. That was kind of the, you know, so you're playing this operatic music and here he is like rappelling outside of the building, holding onto the rope, you know, is after the explosion. 
I just think this movie is so great. And as with so many sequels, nothing could do the original justice, you know, other than maybe the Godfather part two, I'm hard pressed to think of a sequel that maybe lived up to the original. And it maybe in that case, maybe actually exceeded the original. I love Die Hard Christmas movie or not. I don't know. Look, I, I fuck around with that half the time. I don't, I don't know if it is or not. But to me, I think it's one of the great films of all time. Well, and one of the things that the, they mentioned and has been said before is that it started an entire franchise of Die Hard here, Die Hard. Like, as they mentioned, the movie Speed, that's a Die Hard on a bus. Yeah. Uh, the Segal movie, Under Siege, it's Die Hard on a Destroyer. And then uh, later... Uh, Under Siege 2, underrated, by the way, Barry, Under Siege 2. That was Die Hard on a Train. Then you had Con Air. Uh, All these movies, great action films, were influenced by the original Die Hard. Uh, You certainly have to give it credit for that. Uh, He says, action films of the 21st century often suffer from being pushed so far into fantasy and CGI and clumsy chaos. They did deliver no real tension or fun. However, you can never really blame them for trying to do what Die Hard did so well. Oh, yeah. By the way, I'll also, Barry, uh, just to be fair, he also mentions overall Die Hard is the crown jewel of the action genre and, yes, perhaps the Christmas genre as well. No, 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 I will not. Uh, I will not <laughs> abide by that. So uh, did he number, really say that? Yeah, he really said that. Wow. Uh, I, I, I was trying to decide if I wanted to include that and be fair and balanced. And you know me, Mr. Fair and Balanced. Sure. So uh, number two, another film, Barry, that you are going to love because this is, you know, when people talk about what what's one of the great action horror you know movies uh, like what's, what's one of your go-to's very 1982 john carpenter's the thing like this guy so jeff you got to get look we don't sometimes i do kiss a lot of ass when we have guests on we want to get, get this guy on yeah because he needs to get his ass kissed <laughs> this is this is a this is a fucking list this is what i've been waiting for for the last almost 200 episodes He's 100% right. I saw the thing in the theaters on opening day, and I got to tell you, this is a movie that stayed with me. And I probably didn't see it again for two or three years after it was in the theaters, and it stayed with me. And what really stayed with me, what I really thought was great, was the ending scene when Kurt Russell's in the snow, there's nowhere to go, and they're smoking the joint, you know, and it's like it's all over. There's nothing could be done. And I just thought, you know, I was, what, 19 years old when this movie came out. And this movie apparently flopped big time that people didn't go to see it. Critics didn't like it. And happy to say in the last almost 40 years, it's taken on a cult-like status. You never hear a negative word about it, and you shouldn't. It is a great movie from start to finish. And with that, this obviously was a remake. And it's been, it was, it's a remake, and then it was remade again in the last few years. This is the version that you want to see. It is, I think it's absolutely perfect. Another one, what a great inclusion on this list, Jeff. A couple things real quick. Do you remember who the original monster was from the original, I think 1958 or maybe a little couple years before, uh, a version of the thing? Yes, I certainly do. It was James Arness. That's right. Marshall Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke yep. played the monster. So let me just read you a couple things here. And Barry, this guy, I'm, I'm not sure that you didn't read this article because he's related. This, I'm related to this guy at this point. Failure at release. The thing became a highly influential cult favorite over time. Various major filmmakers have claimed to be inspired by it, including Guillermo del Toro and JJ Abrams, Quentin Tarantino, 
Barry just popped wood, also included plots of paranoia amongst groups in his films, including The Hateful Eight. Its influence can also be seen across the entire horror sci-fi genre, beyond film, even in currently popular games like Among Us. And it says it's 110% not for the squeamish as its body horror to the max, but is beloved because it's more than nearly two hours of kill it with fire meme. So uh, I will say... Uh, with fire one of the one of the and it mentioned that the whole claustrophobic element of this film that these guys are basically in this facility that's in the middle of nowhere and uh was it the arctic or the antarctic do you remember i believe it's the uh, that i I wouldn't know i don't even know what's the the difference surrounded by snow nowhere to go and uh, you know they are met with this alien presence that prevents them from escaping starts inhabiting the bodies it's an awesome movie. The, the, the one thing I will say I hated about the movie, Barry, the dog. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, you know. Which I get because you and you've told me that a dozen times. If there's a scene where a dog is injured, killed or abused in any form, you're out. Yeah. You don't want to see it. And I but it's important to the plot of the movie. I will say that. Uh, you know. I like and I like. So I, I got to tell you, I, I really do like this list, but I like his comments as well. I like that comparison of the Hateful Eight, because as you've seen the Hateful Eight there, ba- it all takes place within this this cabin, this house. It's a cabin, I guess. Right. And much like this uh, movie we're describing, it's a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I think that's good. Yeah. And uh, the directors you mentioned as well, big fan of Guillermo del Toro. I've never seen a film that he's ever made that I don't like. And J.J. Abrams, I, you know, hit or miss to me, but can't knock success. That's maybe the most successful guy in Hollywood. Tarantino, obviously, I, I gush over all the time. So, Number one, Barry, most influential movie of the 1980s. Just going to ask you, Barry, if I'm going to pull up a list like this, do you think it's going to have a movie that maybe I like? Got to. It's got to. So what is it really the number one most influential movie? Wow. You, you're damn right it is. Wow. All modern dystopian sci-fi films are indebted. Say it, Barry. It's fucking Blade Runner, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Particularly its vision of what futuristic looks like, flying cars and all. Uh, I'm reading from this guy's article. Intertwining metropolis-type designs with 1940s noir elements is perhaps the most artful sci-fi film of all time. Or, of, I'm sorry, of its time. It also dares to be more philosophical than the market demanded at the time, yep, yep. exploring heavier themes than Star Wars as a loose adaption or adaptation, excuse me, of Philip K. Dick's source material, which, by the way, I read. You know, which that, that's how ended this movie I was. I read the source material, which was Philip K. Dick's short novella, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Boom! How's that for some knowledge, Barry Rose? Absolutely. All these attributes made for a cult hit that cast a long shadow on its many imitators all the way up to its own sequel over 30 years later. The film shows, uh, I'm not sure, is it diastopic Los Angeles where rogue bioengineered androids with short lifespans, try to evade a cop who is conflicted over his mission to execute them. It's dark and beautiful with compelling performances. Rest in peace, Rector Hauer, and an ambient Vangelis score. Though many find it slow paced, keeps it from living up to its hype. It's still very easy to love Blade Runner, and credit is as the start of something big. Barry, did you enjoy Blade Runner? Yeah, and I 
first off, I what I really like about this author of this list is he's obviously watched these films. He's and he's but he's giving you a look at his his thought process too, which I really he's not critiquing the movie. His thought process to me, he understands. He understands what this movie is about. And he that comment right there about how a lot of people with the pacing of the movie, he's right, because there were a lot of people that thought it's slow, Blade Runner's slow, but the philosophical message that is sent is unlike anything I think we had ever seen from a sci-fi film previously. So I really like that comparison. I, I don't know. This, this I fucking hate lists. You everybody that listens knows that. <laughs> I do this that you have you have pulled out fucking gold with this one this and it's not just because i'm agreeing with him obviously that's a portion but his understanding of a lot of these films to me is i think what's missing with a lot of critiques and reviews this guy's got it i really like what he just said a lot uh let me just uh, just finish up what he said because i think this is interesting too it has impacted culture beyond live action film influenced the cyberpunk subculture and informing the look of games and anime so here's one of the things I love about the movie Blade Runner is, as Barry said, this movie really made you think about things. And the whole topic of, you know, the memories that you have, you know, are they your memories or has someone put the, me- you know, the, the, the idea of the memory within a chip in your brain? Well, like when that first came out, you know, like when Rachel is showing uh, Deckard her, the pictures. Oh, here's, here's me when I was a kid. And he's telling her, those aren't your memories. That's probably somebody in the, you know, in the production staff, that's like their kids and they've implanted those. And like, I just went, what, what, what the hell? What? And you try and, you know, and then the whole, you know, more human than human. And, you know, the, the six or seven year lifespan that they, they put into the, uh, the replicants. Yeah. That shit was just like, I remember when I first saw this film, I must've been like maybe 20 years old. And you talk about, I wasn't even stoned when I saw this movie. Can you imagine if I'd been stoned when I saw this movie? I mean, I was like, holy shit, this is like next level stuff. And, uh, you know, the one that came out, uh, like within the last two years, I enjoyed that. It was, it was a really strong, uh, I, I wish it had been made a couple years after the original. I don't know if it could have because of all the technological advances in film that they had made, but, uh, but that was good. But this was like, wow, this was like next level shit, Barry. It's a, well, yeah, it, well, that's it. It's next level shit. You're at a different level. And, and I, you and I talked about the remake. I don't think we ever did it on air. Not, a, not even a remake, I, I guess a sequel. And I think it, there were a lot of things I liked or didn't like about it. I think what I thought was missing was that who was, who was the lead? Was it Ryan Reynolds? Um, yes. Yeah. And I like Ryan Reynolds. I, you know, he's Deadpool and waiting. Uh, he does a great job, but he didn't have that same. No, wait time. a minute. Wait a minute. Was it, was it Ryan Reynolds or Ryan Gosling? Maybe Keep Ryan talking. Gosling. And, and I think little... it's Ryan Gosling. Yeah, okay. I think that would make more sense. I just, I felt he was too, he was too milk toast. He was just too vanilla for me. And I, I wanted, and you know, Harrison Ford's in the film, obviously, but I wanted the grittiness of the Harrison Ford character. It did. The tone was similar though. The overall tone, which was okay, but I, I don't know. This is uh this is a solid list. And this is somebody that I think 
sees the bigger picture with movies. You know, it's not about so much other bullshit. To me, a, a film is a film is what a film is to you. You know, and Jeff, I could sit here and talk to you about Blade Runner. And even if I didn't like it, and obviously I do like it, your passion and the way you would describe it and explain it to me would, would, would draw me in. And, and that's kind of what this guy did with the article. And I really like that. I think most reviewers and critics, they don't do that. I think they're more trying to use fancy terms and big words to get themselves over. Uh, and it's, that's a bunch of bullshit. But honestly, this guy, he comes across as more of a fan who can tell you why he likes something. And he goes real in depth. And I think that that's fantastic. Best yeah. list ever. You know, you know, uh, uh, excluding the whole sex lies and videotape. Uh, <laughs> what was the other one? And what was the uh, other one that I didn't like? Oh God. Now you're going to have me make me pull up the yeah. list again. Uh, evil dead Two. So, um, you know, one thing when I really like, I mean, when a film really grabs me and, and, and takes me somewhere the way that blade runner did when I was a 20 year old kid, I start seeking things out. I've, I've bought books on the making of Blade Runner, on you know the, the meaning of Blade Runner. I, I like am one of these people. It sends me down here. I haven't used this word in a while. It sends me down a rabbit hole investigating, like, what was the filmmaker trying to say? I love the fact that Harrison Ford and um, – God, what are they? I'm just drawing a complete blank on the director of that movie. Um, Ridley Scott, how they both have different views on whether or not Deckard was a replicant. You know, one swears that he was, the other one says, no, no, he was human. Absolutely. And it, because it's open, so open to interpretation, you know, and there's somebody, I, I just read literally within the last week that Edward James almost said that his famous line from the movie where Deckard is going after Rachel and he says something to the effect of, you know, uh, she, you know, she'll never get away. You know, no one lives forever, you know, uh, but who really wants to, or, or something like that. And he said that was basically something he came up on the spur of the moment. It was not in the script and he just threw it out there. So here, 40 fucking years after I watched the movie, I find out that Edward James almost uh, basically threw that line out there uh, unscripted. And that's the kind of shit that just continues my appreciation for the film, Bear. So a very fun top 10, Barry, a uh, good topic of conversation. I'm going to have to find out who wrote this list uh, just on your behalf so we can get this guy in the show, Bear. Yeah, and it'll be fun. And you know what? What I like also, we could probably have an amazing discussion about film with this guy because I think a lot of his thought processes are very similar to how you and I look at films as well. So that could be, pardon me, thank you, a really entertaining uh, 90 minutes or so with this guy. Yeah. So now, Barry, it is time for us to talk about our match of the week. We are going to August 15th, 1992, Barry. It is Manami Toyota versus longtime partner Toshio Yamada, hair versus hair, and Oberry. Tell me if this is the first time we've ever mentioned this. The crowd plays such an important role in this match. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like next level uh, role in this match. Tell us what you thought, Bear. And that's the beauty of Japan too, is that they almost always, you know, get it up for the occasion, if you will. Uh, so let me ask you a question. This is something too. I didn't do the research on this, but. Uh, it's obvious that there's no clear cut heel or baby face here, though. I think Toyota obviously comes across as the bigger baby face, but what, what was the impetus of them teaming and then breaking up? Do, are, do you know, I, I think, uh, it's something to do with, you know, longtime tag team partners. They had faced each other a few times and Toyota had come out 
on the top. And then they had an, a, another match, like they didn't like me, two or three. Then they did a match where Yamada uh, defeated Manami Toyota. Manami uh, wanted to get the win back and said, I want a match with you so bad, I'll put my hair up. Uh, it, that's basically a Reader's Digest version of what happened. And so Yamada's like, well, you, you know, okay, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, so as you, uh, we'll post a link to this match on there just for those that aren't familiar with uh, Japanese women of this time. Uh, when you see the thing, Manami Toyota is the woman with the long black hair. Uh, Toshia Yamada is a very short, uh, I, I don't want to say mannish. That's not fair because uh, she's not really. There are other women in that group that were presented as more mannish. I don't really know that she was presented that way, but she had very short hair, uh, wears like, uh, oh, I guess it's like pants. But Manami Toyota, she's a beautiful woman, first of all. And so uh, I would say. It's sort of like, I, you know, when I when I was watching this match, I was trying to figure out some sort of uh, comparison, and it would be like, if you were talking about Ricky and Robert, like Ricky was the one, they were both popular, but Ricky was a little bit more popular, if you get my drift. And, you know, both of them had their fans and stuff. But if Ricky had faced Robert in a hair versus hair match, you know, uh, uh, the one that they're really worried about losing their hair is Ricky Morton because he had sure. the longer hair. And in this match, Manami Toyota with the very long, beautiful hair would have been the one that they were more afraid that Manami Toyota was going to lose. That's and, probably the best way I can put it. Yeah. And based off of that too, I think my first comment was Toyota's hair because she has got long silk black hair and a beautiful woman. And she still looks good, actually just, you know, she's older now, obviously she's 30 years older, but, uh, Still looks good, but her hair is spectacular. This is a, so first off, this is a great match. And uh, the drama of the hair versus hair, I think, really adds to it. This is a, you know, the women at this stage too, Jeff, these were arguably the best workers in the entire world. You know, that's always up for debate, but it's hard pressed to think that anybody was working harder at this stage than these women were. It's a strong style. You know, this is, they go out the, whether it's the kicks, the slaps, or the suplexes. And let's be honest, these suplexes would put, you know, Brock Lesnar in Suplex City. Th this would put Brock Lesnar to shame. Like, the, the, the speed, the accuracy, and the power that are with these suplexes. This is solid, solid stuff. But this match really comes down to the last 15 minutes of the video, which is the match is now complete. And it's time to cut the hair. And to me, the way that's handled should be a blueprint on how to get fans vested into something. And I'm going to let you take over uh, at this stage so you can go into detail. But I don't think it could have been done any better with the cutting of the hair than the way it was done here. Well, the amazing thing is, is that you have two longtime tag team partners. And they have a hair match. One of the people in the match lose the match. So Barry in the United States, what would happen immediately after the head shaving? Uh, there would I, be I, there would be a heel turn. Of course, the person that lost his hair would immediately attack the other person. Oh, so it was uh, two baby faces. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that, oh, that was yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Well, that, and, that, yeah. And so I, you know, you know the. Wow, this is a really a way back reference, but the you know the the match that I thought of that was that was like that immediately from my very very early days of reading wrestling magazines. Uh, so you're gonna have to put on your way back hat here, Barry. Was when John Tolos wrestled Victor Rivera in a hair versus hair match, and they were both baby faces at the time. 
Victor Rivera wins the match. Tolos gets his head shaved right. by Jimmy Lennon uh, at the Olympic, and he raises Victor Rivera's hand. Yeah, he's the winner, and then he promptly attacks him. And that's like you know the the basic starting point for every idea like this. Well, in this one, they don't do that. The person, the, the woman that gets her head shaved, she accepts it, okay, and they continue to be baby faces. But as Barry was saying, you know, if I was to ask you, and, and I, as I was reading up about this match, the uh, someone pointed out the most emotionally impactful moment of pro wrestling, let's just say in the last 30, 30 odd years, well, actually, it's a little, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit before that, but someone pointed out the most emotionally impactful moment uh, as a wrestling fan and TV viewer was when Randy Savage and Elizabeth reunited. Okay. Do you remember that moment, Bear? I do remember. Yeah. It, it, they played it great. Not only Randy and Liz, but Vince setting it up, all that, the writing on it was just amazing. And they had Sherry Martell as the heel component, trying to keep them apart. It was just brilliant. And so someone wrote that this was probably the only thing that compared to that. I'm sure as you're listening to this, somebody's going, oh, well, you've forgotten this one, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, but this was great stuff because what happens is after Manami Toyota wins the match, okay, and you're right, it is suplex city, uh, every move was was awesome. I It's not like you watch this match and you go, oh, yeah, this is a great match. Well, except for that one spot that they really effed up. No, there wasn't anything like that. These two women were at the top of their game. And let me just say, for probably the 35th time I've said this on an episode of Breaking Gay Fate with Boudard and Barry, the two best friends, sorry, three best friends you didn't know you had. It just shows you this match took place almost 30 years ago now, Barry. And these women were so much further along, I'm sorry, than any woman in this country, even now in 2021. This is shit you don't see Charlotte doing. You don't see uh, Dr. Britt Baker doing, uh, Nyla Rose, whoever you want to uh, throw out there that's uh, a woman that's popular even in AEW or the WWE, whatever. These women were next level uh, in the way they executed the moves, the chances they took, the uh, the way that when someone did an incredible high spot, the other one was there to, to get them and, and to be there for them when they needed them on the move. Just incredible. So now all that being said, after the match is over, Toyota becomes this Meryl Streep-esque actress, okay? Because she is selling, holy shit, what have I done? This means my partner needs to get her head shaved. And it's just amazingly compelling watching to where they bring a barber into the ring. Hold on one second, Bear. Take a swig of water for the working man and woman. And what happens is, she literally figuratively tries to push the barber out of the way so that he won't cut Toshio Yamada's hair. And she begins crying when the other women come in the ring to hold her back. And, and then uh, Yamada finally accepts it. She takes a pair of scissors and begins cutting her own hair to, to say, you know, like, I'm with you on this. As you need to get your hair cut, I'm cutting my own hair. And the emotion, I mean, the people in the crowd are crying. You know, they're, no, no. And it's just incredibly compelling television. And then as the person comes in and then Yamada accepts it and she cuts a slice of her, you know, with the scissors, she cuts a portion of her own hair off. And then the guy goes to work on the hair. And the sight of seeing this woman having her head shaved. And, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, I know that they did a bit in Memphis where Bill Dundee's wife got uh, her head shaved. But uh, this is something that, 
other than that, I can't remember another moment where a woman got her head shaved. Barry, can you remember anything? Uh, in wrestling, I want to say there's a female wrestler or two that probably got their head shaved. I probably wasn't paying attention back then, so I don't. But, yeah, it, it's it's dramatic, you know? It's very dramatic. Yeah. And so, uh, so she's getting the head shaved. They end up, and this is not a Jerry Lawler short haircut. This is a head shaved. And, you know, they got the uh, the clippers out there that, by the way, are charged and ready to go. Uh, unlike what happened to poor Jim Cornette, uh, if you've ever seen that that clip where the thing doesn't work. So they basically Ugh. have to dry shave him. Oh, my God. Yeah. What, what Bill Ugh. Watts put friggin' Cornette through. It's just, <laughs> you know, we should yep. forgive Cornette for anything and everything he's ever said in his life. Uh, you know, during his wrestling career, after interviews, promos, whatever, because holy shit, what Bill Watts put him through was yep. just horrible. But um, so anyway. So it ends up where uh, they they do it. They they both bow to each other, the respect to one another. Uh, Yamada leaves the ring. Uh, Toyota is presented with the uh, the trophy, uh, and I, I can't remember if they give her the belt or not. But you know she's the winner, and it's just incredibly dramatic. Dramatic. It's it's really you know the the whole suspension of disbelief because you're not just you know you've you've had a match that's worthy of like Steamboat and Flair, and then you add this other component. That dare I say even better than the match, and the match is fucking amazing. And then you have this soap opera that adds to it. Oh, oh my God, Bear! I just can't even begin to tell you. It, like when I started watching this, I was like, I know what Dave Meltzer was talking about. This is you know because he was there Imagine live at the live exactly. Yeah, I mean to to sit and watch all these women and and probably men crying over the fact that Yamada is getting her head shaved. Bear is crazy but it was done so well. And that's, yes. that's, that comes down to is the way it was done. And there's a spot in there too, where, uh, as you mentioned, that Toyota cuts off a piece of her own hair, but she's trying to stop the barber. She actually pushes the barber down, runs over and pushes him down. And it's just, it's all so believable too, which I think was such a huge component of this. Uh, this is the way it's supposed to be done. You know, it, this is, this is how you get fans interested in the product. It's not just the payoff, because obviously you do want to have the payoff. At the same time, when you do these payoffs and these blow-offs on these kind of things, you've got to think about the future. And this is the kind of thing, even though this was essentially a blow-off match, it's a hair versus hair match, if these two would have wrestled each other a week, a month later, people still would have been into it the way that the whole haircutting thing was handled. And, you know, uh, I have listed before, uh, as we've talked about the Japanese women before, the fact that I love I loved the crush, uh, crush Gals as a tag team. I love uh, Bull Nakano and Dump. I love Bull Nakano and Kondra Saito. I loved uh, the Jumping Bomb Angels. There's so many great Japanese women tag team of that era. Yeah. And you know what? Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada, they take a backseat to nobody. They were awesome, and they had many great matches themselves. Uh, and we'll probably have to look at them as a tag team uh, down the road. One of their matches uh, against uh, uh, different teams that were out there at the time, whether it's with Akira Hokuda, uh, with uh, Aja Kong, uh, with uh, I, I know they had a couple of matches with uh, involving Dynamite uh, Kansai. Uh, just terrific, terrific stuff. I can't recommend. First of all, if the hair stuff had never been involved in this, I'd recommend this match as an amazing match. Sure. The fact that you have the the match. Plus the drama afterwards. And, you know, you, you don't have to be fluent in Japanese to understand. Uh, and, and that's what's so brilliant about this was you, you don't need a translator saying, oh, this is what she's saying here. You can see like on their faces 
the you know the drama, the emotion, and it's an absolutely incredible. I'll post a link to it uh, in our Breaking K Fable with Bowden and Berry uh, Facebook group because it's truly amazing. You got to see it. Uh, so anyway, Barry, I'm Jeff, exhausted. so who would I'm be, exhausted just talking about? It. Yeah, well, your, your enthusiasm and passion are—they're uh, spilling out into the uh, the airwaves right now. But who was the? Was it Toyota that owned a sushi restaurant in New York? I well, will bow to your better knowledge about that. I'm, are, I'm not sure about that. One of, and I remember seeing a photo, but one of the Japanese women legends owned a sushi restaurant in New York City. I don't believe it's in current operation, but for some reason, I'm thinking it might have been Toyota. It certainly, I remember the woman had very beautiful, long black hair, but you know, I, I realized that there's probably uh, several million Japanese that have very long, beautiful hair, so... But yeah, well, maybe Sweet Lou. That, that looked like Manami Toyota. <laughs> really? well, and it's, still, it's still attractive. So yes, who knows? But uh, but Jeff, on that note, do you know what time it is, sir? Well, let me check my watch. Uh, it is a little bit after five. Oh, oh, you're talking about something else. Oh, I'm talking about it is our part two, as I mentioned, we would most likely do last week. Part two of F. Mary Kick to the Curb, the women of two and a half men. And in looking at the Facebook group, it looked like Jenna Elfman was the one that was getting kicked a lot to the curb, but there was a lot of back and forth between Courtney Thorne Smith and Kimberly Williams Paisley. I do think Courtney Thorne Smith might have taken the lead on that one, but uh, a lot of back and forth on that one. So we have three other women this week. I do believe that friend of the show, Jamie Ward, said if we want to really be fair, we need to show Courtney Thorne Smith what she looks like now, which, you know, don't yeah, be that a hater, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jamie. Yeah, that- that was a little odd right there because if you've seen her, she's, she's a little older and, uh, there's a photo that's out there it was funny when he said that I went looking immediately and there's a photo out there where she has on black eye makeup. It's a little scary. I'm just saying, well, I just want to know, does yeah. Jamie Ward look like now what he looked like 30 years ago? Hmm. Anyway, Gotcha. So, uh, the women, Jeff, I have texted you our favorite, our favorite mail carrier, Jamie Ward. Go ahead there. Absolutely. And, uh, serving Delaware County for some 30 something years at this point. So I texted you three photos and you have got all three photos in your hand along with something else, your phone, no doubt. Yeah. That's Uh, what, uh, thank you. Yes. The first photo I texted you played the character of Sherry. She was a, I believe she was a lawyer on the show. She was dating Charlie, Charlie Sheen, and she was using Charlie for kind of booty calls. And it was a role reversal because that's kind of what he does. So he's trying to adapt to that. The character she played was Sherry. Jerry Ryan, as Sweet Lou pointed out before we went on air, also on one of these Star Trek spinoffs, might have been Deep Space Nine, is that correct? I don't know, but... Next Generation, maybe? Maybe Picard? I don't know. Seven of Nine. Gotcha. But in any case, Jerry Ryan looking fantastic. Uh, that picture, she certainly does. Yeah, she, she's a Definite come-hither look. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman, whether she's uh, you know 20 or 50 at this stage. Uh, she's always been really attractive. The second woman is Kelly Stables. Kelly Stables played Melissa. She was on the show. Alan, who's played by John Cryer, is a chiropractor, voted the San Fernando Chiropractor of the Year. She was his receptionist or assistant and then wound up dating him as well. 
sadly, while the photo is attractive, it doesn't do her justice because when you see her on the show, I think she's like four foot ten. Four, she's this tiny little spunky powerhouse, a powder keg, and she's super hot. I just, I was always, I was like, who, who is she? She's super fine. Lastly, is somebody, and I believe it was Aaron Maxson last week. Who? Aaron. Who? Aaron with one A. Aaron, not with two A's, with one A, Aaron. Maybe it's Aaron. Maybe I'm calling a- him Aaron. Aaron? A- 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 okay, go ahead. It's Aaron. So Aaron Maxson said, when you're talking about the women of two and a half men, it begins and ends with this one. We'll be the judge of that, Maxson. Go ahead. The, uh, the lovely actress is April Bowlby, and she pl- which is a bizarre name. She played a character called Candy. Candy was a 20-year-old, super hot, uh, attractive woman who uh, was dating Charlie first and then switched over to Charlie's brother, Alan, and then actually married Alan, got divorced, took him for all of his money. But uh, she has a heart of gold. She's just not that bright. But boy, is she smoking hot. April Bowlby is candy. So, Jeff, I present to you these three women. Tell me in no. Oh, yeah. Tell me in order, I guess. Who yeah. By you, God, I'm going to give you an order. All right. Uh, Give your F, Mary, or kick to the curb. Well, I will say, first of all, before I announce my choices, that this is a strong group. Oh, yeah. not, no pun intended, not a dog in the bunch. I love uh, Jerry Ryan's uh, Come Hither While Lying in Bed. That's a, uh, that's a go-getter there. Uh, the middle one, uh, not Bowlby. What's her name? The blonde? Kelly Stables. Kelly Stables. Uh yeah, I like the I like that outfit she's wearing there. That's uh, that's pretty nice. And four foot ten, a uh, little cup of dynamite there. Uh, and then uh, we got uh, Bowlby at the end there. Uh, she's already got the necklace, so uh, no need to give her one if you know what I mean. Um, oh, I see what I did there. Little ZZ Top. Yeah, really. Yeah, a little band from Texas. I am going to say that I will, and this may be a shocking, shocking turn of events, uh, Barry. I am going to kick to the curb, Jerry Ryan. I'm going to marry the little four foot ten uh, piece of dynamite, and I'm going to f the hell out of Aaron Maxson's choice. Boom! Well, there you go, Jeff. I am in a Jeff. You are 100 percent correct. Check. I am in complete agreement, and in no universe should Jerry Ryan ever be kicked to the No, curb. no, this is a strong, strong. This is uh, a strong group here. This yes. is like American Idol this year, Jeff. Wow. We, <laughs> we've got a strong group, the strongest Thank of you. all time. Thank you very much, Katie. So, uh, yes. But I got to say, I'm with you, and Jerry Ryan, again, should never be. April Bowlby, she, most of, uh, Candy, most of the uh, time she spent was wearing tight t-shirts and tight shorts she seemed to be working out a lot but i gotta tell you so effing would be key but this little spark plug this little kelly stables was just so adorable on this show and so smoking hot that i would yes marrying is is the right thing jerry ryan played quote unquote a villain on the show though i didn't really see her is that but again, in any other universe, especially the Star Trek. Yeah, and we will we we will post uh, pictures of these ladies and give the uh, group uh, their choice. Uh, so you know, uh, but are we being discriminatory, Bear, by not in- including for the ladies of our group uh, an option for the ladies? And, and not that you and I are going to discuss, but we need to put like you know, a Swayze, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe a couple other guys. Uh, I'll, I'll make uh, a deal. The when 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 women or 
any group of people that find other men attractive want to step in and do that, then absolutely we should All include right. them. So if next maybe week, the beloved if, Mrs. Bowden, I was going to say, and out. your daughter Kelly, maybe well, we get a guest appearance and they can. I'm all for. I think that's great. Okay, so we I, don't, I just don't know if you and I would be accurate. No, Jimmy, that would not be ask, a, not right. not be appropriate <laughs> at all. So <laughs> Jumbo Sharuda, who you fucking who you killing? Right. All right, I see it. <laughs> so anyway, that was a good one, Bear. Uh, all right. Now I want to talk, uh, about yeah. a couple of films that I've seen recently on HBO. Uh, I talked to Barry. Barry has not seen either one of these two. Uh, someone decided to kick HBO to the curb. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, the two particular films I want to talk about are mayor of East town, which, uh, is with Kate Winslet, where she plays the detective in a small town in Pennsylvania, Barry. And lo and behold, as we're discussing this, and by the way, solid 8.0 on the IMDP page. She's investigating a murder in uh, this small town where everybody knows her, Barry, because she, 25 years before, had won the women's basketball uh, state championship with a like a shot at the end of the game. So she's like big local celebrity in the town. But uh, as the show uh, begins, she's sort of world-weary. Her husband has left her uh, and got in the house right behind her, which she's not a real big fan of, go figure. Uh, it's got a really good cast besides Kate Winslet. It has Guy Pierce, oh, uh, Guy Pierce from Memento and also yeah. from uh, LA Confidential and a uh, Gene Smart, who I believe was in uh, Designing Women. And uh, Lou told me one other show that was just out and I've completely forgot it. Lou, tell me what the other show was that she was on. Uh, I appreciate it while we're talking. Uh, but she plays this kind of world-weary detective with the local police department and um, she's investigating the murder of this teenage girl. Uh, and it's like this big scandal in the town uh, involving a lot of the kids from the high school. Uh, Gene Smart was in Watchmen. Thank you, Lou. Appreciate it, buddy. So I started watching it. And I told Barry that I'd reached out to our buddy Cholminski last night. And I said, hey, this uh, the show takes place in Pennsylvania. Do you know where? And he said, not only do I know where. But apparently, it's right by where Barry and Eric and Jamie Ward live. So go figure. And I told Barry, we're going to start off with the filming locations, Barry. Thorndale, PA. Barry, what did you have to say about Thorndale? Absolutely. So Thor- So I've been with Open Table, which uh, you know basically has me in direct contact with restaurants, sometimes up to 25 restaurants per week. In my almost 10 years, I have had one contact with a restaurant in Thorndale. Do you, rem- do you remember that restaurant? It was a, it, and there's not a lot of, not a lot of independent restaurants in that area. It was a pizza and pasta place. Okay. Uh, I totally, but I bet I could find out in 30 seconds if I had okay. to. So while you're doing that, all right, uh, I will tell you that the other cities mentioned, uh, are the aforementioned Phoenixville PA and Montclair PA. We're going to get Barry's thoughts on those in a second. One of the things I liked about the show apparently is they really worked on the getting down the accents of the people in that area. And, uh, what is described as Delco. Barry, have you ever just uh, heard the area that you live in described as Delco? No, because I am in Montco, which is Montgomery County. Okay. So Delco is Delaware County, which is where Jamie Ward lives, actually, and okay. works. Yeah. So, yes, but I, I have heard it. So the place was called, which is a, it's a beautiful name, Joey's Pizza. 
So, <laughs> so if you live in the Thorndale area, if it's yeah. still there, we encourage you to go to Joey's Pizza because it's a they good support. Pizza, actually, it's a good yeah, they, pizza. Yeah, they uh, supported Barry and his open table endeavors. So yeah. Montclair, are you familiar with Montclair, Bear? I'm not. So there's a Montclair, New Jersey, which I think is more like where the great Brian last lives. That's more northern Jersey. I'm, I've never heard of Montclair, PA, though. Okay. But anyway, I have only watched one episode of this uh, program. I will tell you, based on the first episode, strong, strong start. And there is a scene, I will say, that involves uh, a high school girl being harassed by other kids in her high school. It's almost painful to watch. It, it, you know, like I, I told Barry and Lou before we started recording, it's like one of those things that reminds you what kind of big assholes high school kids can be. As, and I say that as far as the way they're cruel to their classmates. And uh, yeah, they're just uh, horrible to this uh, this one girl in this one situation. It's a very short scene, uh, but as you watch it, you're like on, oh yes, I remember idiots like that in high school. So the other thing I wanted to talk about with you, Barry, also on HBO, a documentary on the legendary Tina Turner. Uh, and it deals not just with you know uh, her career, but with her life. And what an amazing, amazing journey she's had uh, first with Ike Turner, then going out on her own. And, uh, you know, subsequently she, within the last, I want to say the last year or two, maybe like right before COVID hit, she uh, officially retired and had her last public appearance where she, uh, I think they were doing some sort of Broadway version of her life. And she came to the the Broadway uh, stage and came out, took a bow and uh, acknowledged the actress that was playing her. Of course, I believe Angela Bassett uh, may have played her in the movie, which was What's Love Got to Do With It, I think. She might have been nominated for an Academy Award for that. Maybe um, even but won an Academy Award She for did? That. Okay. Yeah, no, I know she, I yeah, I'm not she was sure, incredibly but... well-received for it. Yeah. Um, was, was Lawrence Fishburne, did he play uh, Ike? Am I, I believe right? he played Ike, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So what's amazing, uh, besides uh, just listening to her music and all that, is the fact that the story about what she went, what she had to go through with Ike is really, uh, it's alternately very disturbing. And, you know, the fact that she survived this and came out of it better is just astounding because I have to tell you some of the stuff that she, uh, she's, they play recordings that she did like 30, 40 years ago when it was still pretty fresh, you know, in her mind, the things that he did where, she would talk about how they would have a concert and Ike was amongst everything else, a perfectionist. And if he felt like you made a mistake to the people in the band, like you played a wrong chord or something like that, he would turn and nod at you and he would deduct it from your pay for that night's concert. You know, like uh, if you're getting you know X amount of dollars for, for being in the background band and he looked at you, you missed the note. I'm deducting X amount of dollars from your pay that night. But from his wife, Tina, uh, formerly Annie Mae Bullock, he would go back to the hotel room and he would beat her and he would beat her. He would go and take a coat hanger out of the closet. He would unravel the coat hanger so that it was like straightened out and he would beat her across the backside with it. And she uh, is quoted as saying that uh, I felt like my backside was two inches up because it was so swollen because he would beat her. And then he would turn her over and have sex with her, essentially sexually assaulting her. And this was not like something that happened one time. This is something that happened like on a regular basis that she had to deal with. And the story of her escaping uh, from him where she escaped from a hotel room in Dallas and she 
said I was in such and such a hotel. I ran, she ran across the fucking interstate Barry to go to a hotel across the street. And she called for the manager and said, I have a mobile gas card and 35 cents to my name. And if you'll put me up for the night, I'll make sure you're paid. And the guy was nice enough and good enough to take her in. And, uh, she basically, uh, the next time she saw Ike was in divorce court and she said, you can have everything you want, but I want my name. And wow. Just an amazing documentary, an amazing story. Uh, very a fan of T- uh, Tina Turner. Yeah. Huge fan too. And, uh, it, you're right. She retired within, I guess the last year to year and a half. And she had some health issues too. I, it may have been cancer, but I'm not sure. And she gave an interview recently that I was reading and she, she sounds lucid. It was a, uh, a print interview. So I don't know, you know, exactly, but she sounded clear headed and lucid. I believe she is, uh, 80. If not, she's approaching 80. Big regret though, Jeff. I never saw her in concert, and she's such a fucking dynamo oh, of a yeah. performer that I I really regret never going out of my way and seeing her in concert because now I'll never get the chance. Okay, so I got a, I got a question and a story for you, Barry. Sure, Barry, tell me your favorite all time Tina Turner song. Go ahead. Uh, putting you on the spot. Yeah, so it's probably. I mean, it's, I'm going back to Ike and Tina. It's probably Proud Mary, at least her version of Proud Mary is probably my favorite. What's Love Got to Do With It is also a big favorite because that was a, uh, a period of my life that I clearly remember. And that song was a big deal at that point. So it's probably those two songs. Okay. My favorite song is uh, her song, Better Be Good to Me. Great song. And I'll tell you, first of all, it's a great song. You're absolutely right. But one of the things that I love doing, and I was telling Lou this while you were uh, uh, momentarily uh, indisposed as sure. we were recording, uh, is that when the song comes on the radio, I'll look at my wife and I'll go, do you know that this is like my favorite all-time Tina Turner song? That will be the cue for Mrs. Bowdrin to roll her eyes because she knows what's coming next, Barry. <clears throat> as I sit there alone with the radio, and I go, <clears throat> it's the first time we've ever done this on the show, by the way, Barry. Are okay. you ready? Let's do it. Prisoner of your love. Entangled in your web. Hot, hot whispers in the night. I'm captured by your spell. Captured! Thank you. Thank you. That was wow. me doing Tina Turner. Yeah, when she does the husky voice on the it's intro, almost identical, better, Jeff. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm couldn't I'm tell sure, like, almost. If you closed your eyes, <laughs> you're like, we've got Tina Turner right. as a fucking guest on the show. It? Oh yeah, so better be good to me. That's my favorite Tina song. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I will mention that our producer, the sweet man Luke Kippelman, uh, here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, uh, got that out of the way. Luke uh, told me that was his favorite uh, Tina Turner song too. So. Great show, HBO, Tina Turner, the documentary. It's, uh, I think it's I, Tina or something like that. Uh, so I definitely would recommend that. And Mayor of Easttown. So, Barry, we are now heading for the home stretch. We're uh, going and approaching the end. So I got one last thing that we need to talk about here on the old Breaking Kayfabe. Friend of the show, Barry, Stephen Javorski. I don't know if it was Facebook, Twitter, whatever, posted this comment, this question. I wanted to get your opinion, Barry. He talked about Barry Windham turning on Dusty Rhodes, uh, joining the Four Horsemen. Of course, you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Of course. And Stephen Javorski, somewhat controversially, uh, I may say, said this was the greatest heel turn ever. Now, we, uh, talked, <laughs> we talked about this heel turn, okay? And it was, right. it was very, very well done. 
And I loved it. It was great. So from that point of view, Stephen, you're right. It was a great heel turn. But Barry Rose, was it the greatest heel turn ever? Oh, no, it wasn't even. I mean, it was great. Shooting down Javorski. It wasn't even close to to the greatest ever. So, yeah. I'm going to give you three that are better. Go ahead, Barry. Uh, Sure. Joe LaDuke's heel turn in Florida, which if anybody that saw it, that was that was one that people to this day still talk about. It was that exciting. Ernie Ladd's heel turn on Dusty Rhodes, I think, was more impactful. And the third one I'd have to come up and I'd have to think and I probably would look for something more current. But no, it was look, it was a good heel turn. We just reviewed this, what, a month or two ago? Mm -hmm. Javorski apparently not listening to the episode. I'm guessing, but no, when you say greatest of all time, not even close. I don't think it's even close. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna give you a couple. Sure. Okay. First of all, the go-to to end all go-tos in my estimation was okay. one I believe you were at Barry. Oh Ole Anderson turning on Dusty in the cage in Atlanta. Absolutely. I was there. The professor was there. Yes. Uh, Vandal was there. Yeah, I would say even that was that was more dramatic. I think in this, I don't want to, but I, I definitely want to hear your list. I think because Barry was so subtle, if he had been a, maybe a little more over the top, and that's who Barry Wyndham is. You've met him in person a couple of times, Jeff. He's a pretty low key guy, and I think that I think that was part of the reason I wouldn't put that a little bit higher. But I want to hear the rest of your list. I like that one a lot. Okay, next I would come up with. Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy turning on Carrie in the cage. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let me think. Those are the two that came to my head. I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, pfft. well, uh, gee, Larry Zabisco maybe turning on Bruno. Yep. Uh, that that definitely would have had to have been up there. Um, try, I was trying to think of right off the top of my head, Memphis. Uh, let's see. Jerry Lawler turned multiple times. Yeah, but I'm like, you know, like right. the person that out of the blue turned on. Uh, a to- how about Tommy Rich's heel turn? Well, this is, I- I'm thinking of more like shocking, like ones that caught people off guard. You Eddie know, Gilbert or no? Uh, yeah, let me think. Uh, our old friends, Pete Letterberg and Howard Baums there used his Yeah, props. no, that, no, that was very good. Yeah. yeah. Then that's if you're going to call Pete and Howard, anything props certainly goes well. <laughs> props. So, uh, yeah. uh, well, wait a minute, Ted DiBiase turning on JYD. Good Lord. That revolutionized that whole territory, yep. you know? Uh, so yeah, there's, there's tons out there. Uh, I'm not completely shitting on the BW turn. That no, not at all. It's but a great you know, turn. It's yeah, just... but how many times did guys turn on Dusty for God's sakes? You know, oh, I mean, in Florida, it was yearly, so there was it was almost like you could almost put it on but, a count. You know, I mean, for for, the, for that time frame, you know, and a lot of our audience, of course, was big fans of the NWA, uh, the Jim Crockett years, the the Horseman years, and all that kind of stuff. And when Barry did that, and you know, think. Think about would that have ever happened, or if that had happened, if the accident never happened, would that have instead been Magnum turning on Dusty as opposed to BW? Yeah, and I think that would have been great because I think that's what Magnum needed, and I think he had some sort of heel charisma. And I think I think we've discussed this too. I think that Magnum could have done extremely well as a heel and going forward. So interesting thought with this is Dusty Rhodes had. Did he have more guys turn on him than any other wrestler? Um, I'm trying and who to else I'm, would be in contention if if it's not Dusty? Well, could it be? Because you know the only one I'm thinking of is maybe Lawler. Because you you think right. of like who are your great 
territorial baby faces. You know, Bruno, how many guys turned on Bruno that were quote unquote Bruno friends? How many guys turned on Backlund, right. uh, you know, that were Backlund friends? That, that was like the staple uh, go-to template uh, of, you know, uh, of getting somebody over as a heel is that they're friends with uh, the champion or they're friends with the guy that's the top of the card. And, you know, they turn on them. That's what uh, I know Maya Villa did that with Backlund. And, you know, like I said, Zabisco did that with Bruno. So that was a, an easy go-to thing to do. Yeah. Interesting though. I'd be curious. And I, I think with Dusty, we might be able to actually, at least up to a certain point, even figure out how many people, uh, how many of his partners or, or friends turned on him in wrestling. So I like I, that. I'm going to do I, some I, research. I, I was going to say, I think by the time <laughs> this episode drops, uh, when we post a, uh, a link to this episode, uh, because I know you have nothing else going on in your life, Barry. You're just, you know, you're basically Bored. not doing much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, just uh, you'll have plenty of time to research this and post how many guys turned on Dusty Rhodes during his career in CWF. So uh, I think, you know, obviously, is who? what about Eddie? How many guys turned on Eddie? Eddie Graham? Eddie Graham? Uh, not that many, actually. I, I don't I, I think if you go back to the 60s, but I don't think that was the template for Dusty. I, I I can only think of a couple that actually turned on Eddie that I'm aware of. Yeah. All right. So for my co-host, uh, Barry Rose and our producer, the sweet man, Luke Kippelman, I will r- remind you yet again that uh, breaking cafe with Dodger and Barry, uh, by the way, Barry, we did not mention and have not mentioned lately that we have a lovely, lovely Facebook group that we would encourage you to join. And if you have not as of yet, what the hell's the matter with you? What are you waiting for? <clears throat> so, uh, our breaking cafe with Bowden and Barry message board, which by the way, the poll has been re-upped. I don't know what the hell happened, Barry. All of a sudden I uh, looked at my phone one day. And, oh yeah, you can post polls. Well, what's the problem? <laughs> it's that Who's AOL browser. Ah, uh, who the hell knows? You know? <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah. for our producer, sweet man, uh, Luke Kippelman and Barry Rose, I am Jeff Bowden. They call me the booker and we will talk to you next week. We're a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.